Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. And there are some governments who choose then to be more active. So the government of Scotland has set a target of how many companies they want to be employee-owned in Scotland. I think it's 500 within a decade, right? At Scotland is one-sixth the size of Canada. So 500 is, is a very aggressive target. And they have put some money behind uh, advocating, advertising, providing some grants uh, for advisory services in order to research it for individual private companies. And that is really paying off. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. It's Jason Watt. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Um, in this episode, I'm going, to talk, I'm going to be talking to John Shell about employee ownership trusts. I've been trying to get John on the podcast for quite some time but we kind of waited until after the budget 2023 stuff came down because it gave a pretty strong structure for that conversation. I learned a lot here. Uh, John has studied this topic for 20 years and knows it very well. So great to have him on. Uh, This episode will be good for life insurance credits in all jurisdictions, no ANS credits in Alberta, be good for a financial planning credit from FP Canada, a professional development credit from IROC, and a, a retirement planning credit from MFDA. And uh, we're going to cover broad range of stuff, the EOT rules, the Employee Ownership Trust rules as they're proposed. We're going to talk about how legislation gets made. This is pretty interesting. And we're going to compare this to some other employee ownership trust rules in other jurisdictions. The object for today, I'm at the office today, and uh, the object for today is my coffee cup. So these are the uh, generic, like I think they're IKEA, yeah, IKEA coffee cups that we have in the office. There's your object, a coffee cup. All right, on that note, let's roll into the interview. Thanks very much. I'm here today with John Shell of uh, Social Capital Partners. Uh, John has joined me to talk about employee ownership trusts, which for those of you paying a lot of attention to budget 2023, you might have noticed. Um, I think you did have to be paying a lot of attention to notice it, John. Is that fair? That's very fair. It's not one of those things that got any, I didn't see any real headlines about it. There were a couple. It's slowly moving from, you know, page 300 to page, you know, 180. I think this time might have been page 80. So we're getting there. But I mean, the hardcore tax nerds, you know, Miller Thompson blogged about it and all that kind of stuff, but it's not. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so John, can we get a little bit of your background here? And we'll come back then to the budget 2023 and all that goes along with that. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Social Capital Partners? Sure. Social Capital Partners is a nonprofit uh, started about 20 years ago by my partner, Bill Young. Uh, its focus is on trying to reduce inequality using new financial approaches that broaden opportunity uh, uh, for people. For its first 15 years, it focused on the uh, uh, labor side of inequality, right, where it was the focus was helping people who are facing barriers to employment find good full-time jobs using market-based approaches, and, and, and it was very successful at doing that. About five or six years ago, we pivoted saying, there's lots of people focused on the labor or income side of inequality. Governments focused on the income side of inequality. Very few people focus, focused on the capital or assets side of inequality. And so we shifted to that. So how do we help people uh, um, access ownership uh, uh, you know, more broadly than they can today? And that's what led us to the work that we're doing today. Everyone at, at SCP has a private sector background. We see ourselves as trying to combine market forces and doing good. Uh, and and so, you know, we all come from some form of private sector background. I was a management consultant for a while and then spent a dozen years as an entrepreneur in the veterinary industry. Uh, uh, you know, Bill has a long background in the private sector as well. I didn't know what uh, industry it made you living in before, but uh, I know there's like a history of roll ups in the veterinary sector and all that good stuff. Right. This is that's me. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I think that was on uh, Freakonomics recently, actually. As uh, it was, it was. I yeah. listened to that uh, uh, episode. In fact, the guy who they interviewed from the U.S. he bought an Australian company that I founded. That is a longer and interesting conversation. I'm very conflicted about my role in that industry, but but it was a, a lot of interesting learning about how the financial system works. That's for sure. And yes, I do recall that there was a bunch of Australian consolidation. I think I might have listened to something on Built to Sell Radio about that too at some point. Oh, so, interesting. Okay. Yeah. My, all right. Okay. So can you talk about then in your sort of post pivot, like now it's a long time, but what would your involvement now in financing employee ownership look like? So we work with Canadian pension funds uh, to help finance employee ownership in the United States. Uh, the U.S. has, you know, we're Canadian and Toronto-based, but the U.S. has an extraordinary, extraordinarily robust approach to employee ownership that allows business owners to sell to all of their employees at no cost to the employees using effectively a leveraged buyout on behalf of employees. And one of the things that's been missing in the U.S. is patient, flexible capital. And so we've been working with pension funds to try to fund some of the larger deals uh, in the US, you know, in transition to employee ownership. We've done one deal since we started working on that. It was a relatively large one. We funded the transition of Taylor Guitars to their 1,400 employees. So it's now a, Taylor Guitars, one of the largest acoustic manufacturers in the world. They are now 100% owned by their 1,400 employees based mostly uh, in Southern California and some in Mexico. And so we, we helped finance that uh, in partnership with the Healthcare Ontario Pension Plan. I did the, I have so many questions about this already, John, sorry, I'm going to yeah, get sure. way off track here. Did the Mexico employees cause complexity there or did they fall under a U.S. regime somehow? It is uh, very impressive that you got right to the nub of it. Uh, um, it was incredibly complicated. It's the first time, in fact, that a U.S. ESOP has ever been applied to uh, Mexican employees. Uh, it required a ton of work on behalf, uh, you know, on the part of the M&A um, firm and on, on on the part of Taylor Guitars. We didn't, you know, we weren't active in that, but it was a 
really interesting process. And the process that they used, sadly, uh, wouldn't work in Canada uh, um, for reasons that, again, are, you know, we, those weeds are weeds we ought to not get into. Uh, um, uh, but it was a really interesting uh, process and, and for Mexican employees, uh, you know, life changing. You can see that. That's, you know, participation in a, a company at that scale. Right, assuming it was relatively successful, I have to imagine that's a that's a big win. So that's pretty cool. That's that takes that mission statement to a new level because you're not just talking about improving access to capital, but now you're improving access across borders too, right? That's- totally, totally. And it's it's an extraordinary company. If you put the Mexicans uh, uh, part of it aside, it's not an unusual story in the U.S. There are a lot of companies like Taylor Guitars who have sold to their employees that are now eighty percent, ninety percent, one hundred percent employee owned. Without you know, with incredible results for workers and communities, and I'm sure we'll talk about that more. But but um, you know, you do see this with some regularity in the U.S. And so your role here would essentially be like the employees would strike a deal with the exiting owner, and then there would be a whatever a five year buyout, and you're essentially financing that five year buyout with the shares as as collateral. Is that close? Uh, it, it's close. The, the, the key difference is the way employee ownership trusts work is, you know, this is true in the U.S. and it's true in the U.K., is that the owner has a decision. So so it, in the case of Taylor Guitars, it's a useful, and, and this will be useful, I think, for the rest of the conversation. Um, the owner has a choice when they get to a certain age and they're looking to retire, and the owners of Taylor Guitars were in their late 60s and had run the company for, you know, 40-odd years. They didn't have family that was going to take it over, so they knew they had to sell it. And they have their choice between, you know, selling to a competitor, and there are many competitors who wanted to buy Taylor Guitars, or a private equity firm. And private equity had been very active in, in the guitar uh, space. But uh, for Bob Taylor, Kurt Listug, you know, the, they saw that private equity had been pretty unsuccessful uh, in, in the guitar space and didn't want to see that happen to this thing that they had founded and grown all these years. But they didn't want to see their, their culture and legacy be bought up by a competitor. And so they themselves decided to sell their empl- to their employees through the ESOP, which is a you know a, a, this American a, a invention um, that uh, uh, that the employees didn't know about. So in the, in, the, in the employee ownership trust, the employees don't even know that the deal is happening. And then one day, the owner walks in and says, "You know, we're going to set up a meeting." And you know, this happened with Taylor Guitars, and says, "Everyone needs to attend this meeting." And it was in the middle of COVID, so it was virtual. And they said, "Listen." You know, uh, uh, we know you guys know we're getting older. We know you knew something was going to happen. But here's the thing that's just happened. We've sold the company to you. And you are now the owners of the company. And how that works is we're going to continue to run this thing the way we have. We have a thoughtful succession plan. Here's Andy. He's the new CEO. We're going to continue to serve on the board. The company's going to pay us out out of profits over time. We've we've set all that up. And as they do that, your share value would grow. It doesn't cost you a cent. No risk to you, but we're going to use this structure to make sure that you are now the owners of this company and you will carry this legacy on on our behalf. And that that's how it works in the US and the UK. That, that does sound like a huge success story. You know, the alternate, like if you go the PE route, the fire half the workforce, figure out whatever they can manufacture in China, right? You know, eventually. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, th- there there are different flavors of private equity, and so this isn't to say that all private equity is bad. Uh, um, you know, I, their private equity buyout funds are worse than, you know, private equity growth funds or, or were, and worse Great. than venture capital. And in that industry, they just had, you know, look, there are some industries where 
an understanding of guitars, a passion for the industry, a long-term strategy. And when I say long-term, I don't mean three to five years. I mean, 30 years uh, uh, really matters, right? In terms of building at, you know, customer retention over time. And, and a Taylor guitars players are Taylor guitars players. They buy dozens of Taylor guitars. Taylor Swift plays a Taylor guitar, Jason Mraz, you know, famous uh, musicians uh, who care about the sound and you can't mess with that. And the moment you say, you know, this quarter we're going to focus on EBITDA, right? Well, that's a problem. And, and so it's different than other industries that may be less affected by private equity. I think the, the important thing is, you know, as we think about all of these types of things, there is no one size fits all answer. But for these owners, you know, they this was a wonderful uh, option that doesn't exist in very many places and allowed them to, you know, in their view, continue the legacy that they built over decades. Probably the most interesting thing about this is it was essentially a surprise to the people participating. Yeah. That's um, I, ha I have a question later on where that might be my answer. So yeah, sure. Let's see. Yeah. Okay. So now let's switch to Canada and the um, somewhat depressing situation. That's a, a spoiler alert, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, the somewhat depressing situation we find ourselves in right now, although maybe I should be more optimistic than that. So over the past three federal budgets, 2021 budget, 2022 budget, and then the recent 2023 budget, we've seen sort of this, um, I don't know, progress. I, I'm hesitant to use that word, but um, can no, you just no, talk progress. about... Okay, let's hear it then, John. What's happened here? Look, I, so, so you know, the, the U.S. version of this um, has been around, and for, for the Canadians listening to this who heard the word ESOP, and I said the Americans invented it, and you're like, what do you mean there's an ESOP in Canada? It's an important distinction I just want to make up front, because these are financial planners, I think, that are largely your audience, and so they're going to say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. In the U.S., it's it's called an employee stock ownership plan, whereas in, in Canada, you'd, you'd mostly call this an employee stock option plan. This acronym problem has been an issue but the thing in the U.S. is this retirement plan that is very specific, designed for the full succession of companies to employees. It's been around for 50 odd years. And in that time, there's been no progress in Canada. And so to give this government credit, they, you know, we put out a report in October 2020 saying we should have this in Canada. Other people had said that at various points in the past. But this government said we're really interested in that. We think that's a good idea. And let's do something about it. So you got to give them credit for that. Now, you know, over the last few years that the, you know, they've on the political side made some progress in, 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 uh, um, you know, building a narrative around why this is a useful thing. Um, we've had less luck on the actual policy itself. And I think that's where you're getting, uh, because what happened is in 2021, the government said in their budget, we are going to look into this. We think it's an interesting idea, successful in the U S and the UK. Great. Um, and I should just pause for a moment and say the case for this is not that the Taylor guitar. I mean, it's it's the Taylor guitars case, but it's also all of the research that's been done on employee-owned companies. So, because it's been around for fifty odd years, we know things about it. We know that they uh, um, grow faster than other companies. We know that they perform much better in recessions. They lay off far fewer people and grow much faster coming out of recession. We know they default less often than other companies. We know they stay in their local communities longer. So, they're not only are they more resilient but they make communities more resilient. They pay better, they better benefits. And of course, there are these spectacular wealth generating um, outcomes for employees. So they make people more resilient. So as we think about making the economy more resilient, employee ownership 
is a very important part of that. And it's grown in the US to the point where there are 6,500 of these companies employing 14 million Americans, or sorry, 10 million Americans, 14 million beneficiaries worth $1.7 trillion in assets. The UK, they brought this in in 2014. And last year, 332 uh, UK companies sold to their employees, meaning over 30,000 new owners of companies just last year alone. So we, uh, so the politicians got all of these benefits and said, you know, we do want to do this in Canada. So 2021 budget, they said this 2022 budget, they had learned enough to say, we are going to do it, right? We've investigated it. We're going to do it. We'll have something for you soon. And then in the 2023 budget, they released draft legislation saying, here's what we've come up. Therein lies some of the issues <laughs> because what they came up with was not what we were expecting, but you know, uh, so that's, that's what's happened in Canada. Now, now we'll talk about, you know, where we are with this, but uh, in terms of, of the, the, the plan. So, so 2023 budget, they said, here is what we, what we were going to, what we propose. And uh, we're going to have it in place for January 1st, 2024. And we're going to pass it in kind of in the fall of 2023. So we're in this period now of government hearing feedback on their proposed legislation. Yes. And this um, feedback process, can you chat a little bit about sort of uh, social capital's involvement in this or maybe what like what as what I as a as a taxpayer could do here? Well, in, in I, I can I can definitely talk about that. And then we should probably talk about what they've what they've suggested. And, uh, um, but but, you know, where it is right now. So so um, in January of this year. So since we so let me step back for a second. Since we uh, introduced this idea in 2020, a number of leaders from across Canada have decided that this was a thing that was useful and they wanted to get involved in, which has been wonderful. It's been wonderful to see people come out of the verbal. So in January of this year, we were a co-founder of something called the the Canadian Employee Ownership Coalition, which is 75 or so. Uh, leaders from across the country, from the academic community, from the charitable community, from the business community. There's, you know, the Bank of Montreal is involved. So there's a, there's a bunch of, you know, a bunch of uh, private sector businesses. I'm saying that we need more employee ownership in Canada. So as a group now, we are engaged with the government in providing some feedback on what they've proposed over the next month or so. And we, you know, we are now at, um, at sort of end of June. By the end of July, we expect them to have introduced you know, reintroduce the legislation uh, and 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 will actively say we are now ready for feedback. Anyone who wants to to comment on what they've suggested can either reach out to me uh, um, or can reach out directly to the government. Um, yes, I find that uh, this is one thing that like our government generally does well is there's good consultation processes for those who want to participate in them, which is yeah. usually a pretty small pool. Yeah. Okay, so now you're right. We should actually look at the outcome here. So uh, do you want to look at sort of what Canada did? Do you want to talk about US, UK and how those contrast? What do you think the best way to frame this is, John? Well, I guess the first thing to do is to, is to ask, why don't we have much of this in Canada? And what do we need in order to have more? And, and you know, the, the Canadian situation, you know, there's probably a few dozen, maybe there's 60, maybe there's 70 uh, majority employee-owned companies in Canada. There are so some big ones: Ellis Dawn, PCL. There's a number in the construction industry. Friesen's. Um, there's a company called Spartan Controls in Calgary. So there's a number of relatively large 
employee-owned companies, uh, um, you know, in, in Canada. But the, but there are a lot of barriers to creating them. So in talking to the folks at LS Dawn and talking to the folks at Friesens, they jump through a number of, loop, of hoops in order to m- make this happen and continue to jump through those hoops. The main issue is that there isn't in Canada a trust designed to borrow money on behalf of a group of beneficiaries that they can then hold, that the trust can then hold long-term. So the, 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 in order to make employee ownership work like this, there's a few things that need to be true. One, you needed to be able to borrow money to buy out the shares in a way that the company then pays that debt back, right? So, so that's, the, that's what allows for the leveraged buyout to occur for the owner. You need governance to be indirect. Right. So for larger companies who uh, do this, like Taylor Guitars, uh, if they were to convert to, say, a worker co-op the next day, you know, there'd be some challenges with that. So so the, what makes these successful is how stable they let the company stay. Right. They're all about continue, you know, continuation of the same approach that's been successful for decades. And so the the, the employees own their shares indirectly through a trust and allow for governance to you know transition over time but largely remain consistent over time and then the third is it allow these um uh trusts to own the shares long term in canada we have something called the 21 year rule which requires that a trust is revalued every 21 years so for the purpose of paying taxes that's brought in so that you can't have families who just pass things down over and over again and nobody ever pays any tax but that 21 rule makes 21 year rule makes this type of trust really difficult. And and so you know in order to have a trust in Canada you needed to get rid of the 21 year rule for the purposes of this trust. You need to st- establish a bunch of safeguards for employees to make sure this wasn't used as some kind of, you know, tax move, right? Um, and you needed to ensure that the other things were possible in terms of borrowing money, etc. So there needed to be a structure um the other thing that needs to be true is some form of incentive, right? So in the U.S., uh, um, if you're a, an owner that sells at least 30% of your company to an ESOP, you largely don't have to pay capital gains tax, right? You, you defer it and then you can then it kind of gets eliminated uh, uh, to your estate. In the U.K., if you sell a majority of your company to an EOT, you pay no capital gains tax, right? Just waived, Right. And of course, the reason why they do that is a trade-off for all of the wonderful outcomes that employee ownership and trusts create for workers and communities and the resilience of the economy. So politicians have said, we want that. In order to do that, we need to convince owners to, to sell to your employees as opposed to foreign-owned, you know, the consolidators, et cetera. Um, and that required an incentive. So that was, you know, the other, so, so we needed the structure, we need the incentive, and we need the regulations to ensure that employees are protected. So those are the three things we needed to see. And so the actual stuff that did happen here in the, at least what we see based on the 2023 budget, the proposal there, um, it does create the trust. Yes. There is some sort of governance structure here. What's the, what, yeah. Can you talk about the governance structure maybe to kick us off? Yeah. So, so the legislation that was proposed was a bit of a surprise, right? For a number of reasons. Uh, uh, surprise number one, no incentives at all, right? So, I mean, there's some marginal incentive around delaying taxes, but it's, you know, everyone we've talked to has put that close to zero in terms of its, you know, value uh, to a seller. So there's no incentive. Just, yeah, so that I can talk about that briefly. Yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, no. yeah, so normally when I sell a business, 
I can access a five-year reserve. I can spread my gain out over five years. Basically, I sell the whole business today. The buyer takes five years to buy out, and I can kind of spread the capital gain out over those five years. In the case of the EOT as proposed, you can spread that out over 10 years, which essentially gives you the same treatment as we get with um, the property sold to a child in in today's world. So, um, and yes, I agree the gains on this are likely, um, you know, they're the, the outcome here is likely inconsequential. And I don't, I've never seen the 10 year reserve used when selling to a child. John, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It must, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's various problems uh, uh, in terms of that being, you know, a powerful incentive. But but uh, certainly every business advisor we've talked to has said no one is going to care about this incentive. So so no incentive. Certainly nothing compared to what has happened in the U.S. and the U.K. That's surprise number one. Surprise number two was the governance, right? So what we know from success in the U.S. and the U.K is that in order to ensure that these companies can be stable and successful long-term for the benefit of workers, it needs a government, a governance structure that is itself stable and, 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 uh, you know, able to maintain a successful approach long-term. They've introduced, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, I'm sure, a new and untested governance model, um, that, that really came out of left field. We have no idea where it came from. The third surprise was the qualification. So they have limited the companies that can access this to uh, companies that employ uh, you know, more than 90% or, or where more than 90% of the assets used in the company are is are based in Canada. So it, it's the same test that's used for the long-term capital gains exemption, and it will limit the to kind of smaller domestically focused uh, companies and frankly, that's the, that is you know of all of these three surprises, that third one was the one that has created the most anger, frankly, among the the, the business community that we talked to because the people who you know wanted to have an option to do this, who have been told all their lives that what we want to do in Canada is grow and compete globally, and you're saying now I can't sell to my employees with this new model. I mean, it has created a bunch of anger. So those are the three big ones. There are some others that you know there are some regulations that have been very successful in the US that protect employees that ensure broad broad access uh, um, uh, you know and, and more equitable sharing across uh, companies that are employee owned um, that weren't in here so there's also some protections for employees that, that weren't in this legislation so you know a lot of of surprises uh, uh, for us and you know the one thing that is true is the very base of it as you said the trust has been created the, all employees get shares. You know, in in Canada, they've put a one year requirement that you need. You know, you should be employed for for a year, or, or you you know you have if you've been employed for a year, you have to qualify. So that's good, um, and you pay nothing for your shares. So those are three things that are true also about the U.S. and the U.K. that needed to be there, right? Table stakes. So they got those things, but the surprises are very problematic. Yeah, and the, so as I recall, the trust also it can essentially borrow money from the corp without incurring. So without incurring any shareholder benefit or any any taxable benefit? Yeah, I mean, that, that one probably isn't going to be used, uh, Jason. I mean, most of these will use uh, um, a structure that's often used in private equity to get the shares into NUCO. So, uh, um, you know, while that there may be some structures that use that, I mean, that uh, even, even, you know, there's that's a, that's incredibly minor and, and unlikely to be used. 
I had the same thought. Like essentially the corporation has to have enough money to buy its own shares for this to yeah. be yeah. material, right? Yeah. And, uh, and the only and, the only the only logical uh, borrowing entity is is the company itself, right? So you know, because otherwise I have no collateral. The trust itself has, you know, so it's uh, um, the company itself is going to take on the debt at the end of the day, and so that it's a relatively um, uh, irrelevant aspect to it. Right. Um, and then no mention of the twenty-one year rule, which there's plenty of. Um, oh no, no, no! So, so that they did that, yeah. they did eliminate oh, they did, the twenty-one right. year rule. Oh, good. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry, I, I should have mentioned that. that. So that's yeah. important. Okay. They did eliminate yeah. the twenty-one year rule for okay. for the for this. I, company. Sorry. I 100% forgot about that, John. Sorry. So that's good. Thanks. No, 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 no. I should have mentioned right. it. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Um, somebody out there is cheering because you got me on a tax point. That's good. <laughs> okay. Good. I, I promise you there's somebody out there who's happy that. All right. Well, that. you're so, welcome. Somebody. Thanks. Yeah. Somebody. Um, might be Ian. I'm not sure. So, okay, um, all right. So, um, okay. Now where we're at here, um, you're obviously working to like, this is not a done deal. There's plenty Correct. of still opportunity to get yes. this closer to what we need it to be, or maybe get it all the way to what we need it to be. Yeah. There's no, there's no reason. So first of all, I believe that uh, the government is genuine in their interest in making this work. I think that it is a new topic for the bureaucracy who knew nothing about this when we introduced it in October, 2020, I think they are under-resourced uh, and, you know, uh, have been trying to get up the curve. I am, I am optimistic that enough uh, um, and, you know, resources will be applied to this over the next few months to make sure we make it something that people will use. Just to give you, you know, I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want it to sound like it's just me here with my opinion on this. We sent a um, survey to uh, advisors who, you know, and we pre-qualified these advisors to make sure they knew about the EOT and had studied it and looked at the legislation. And we and we asked questions about how often people are going to use it. You know, 25 of the 29 respondents said either never or rarely. Um, you know, and in, and in fact, we asked the question, this was, we said, listen, if someone is super committed to selling their employees, to selling to their employees, and they don't care about any tax incentive, they don't care about the governance, doesn't matter. Um, would you use this structure? And 27 of the 29 said no. They said we would use an employee hold co or some other version, you know, if if incentives weren't the issue. And of course, that means very few of these are going to happen because very few of these are going to happen today. If only two of the 29 would consider using this thing. So, so we have a ways to go to get this thing right. We, but I believe the government is genuine. In, government is genuine in trying in wanting to get over. I I agree with you. In the in the current structure, I think there are still easier ways. To, if you're going to go employee ownership, there are easier ways to do it. There's yeah, just ways that exist right now that that makes sense. Okay, so the I don't know how much you can talk about this, John, but I, I one of the things I'm interested in here is maybe a little bit of the the sausage factory that goes into making policy. So, and I know you have to be a little bit cautious about this because there's lots to I don't know, whatever these are these are complicated conversations and yeah you don't want to burn bridges and and all that good stuff, John. Right, I, I get all that. So, can you talk a little bit about what happened between the 2022 and maybe even 2021? budget and where we landed, like you said, lots of surprises for you with 2023, but, but what kind of happened in that interim? Well, and so this is where we bore your listeners to death and hopefully Ian will still hang on because of, you know, the little gift I gave him earlier. 
Um, uh, so the first thing we did is we talked to uh, uh, elected officials about this uh, um, from all parties, right? And you know the only and, and there's there is all party support, right? A, a, you know the conservatives love this, the New Democrats you know really like it, the the liberals uh, uh, like it. So there's there's you know in, and that's played out across in the UK and the US as well. So Republicans and the Democrats have each independently and as a group you know, on bipartisan bills brought in new incentives for employee ownership over time. And in the UK, this was brought in uh, under a coalition government like we have today in Canada. So a lot of support on the political side. Um, and, and, you know, I'm now I'm learning, I've never tried to make law before or help make law before. So this is all has been very new and interesting to me. So on the so then what happens is on the policy side, you get a number of of, of staffers and there aren't that many of them who work for ministers who say, we want to do this. Tell us about it. They say, okay, great. And then they punt it to the bureaucracy. And so it goes from a staff at, say, the minister of finance, who has, you know, a couple dozen people working directly for her in the policy side, to the ministry of finance, where there are thousands of people working on a bunch of different things. And they are, um, they will be less excited about the political side of this, right? They will be focused on how does this affect my job? How does this affect, you know, the the tax act, which I consider as a Ministry of Finance official to be a very important document that I have to protect with my life. Um, you know, and and what are the 18 different risks that I need to worry about that occur, you know, here, there, and everywhere else. And you know, you want that. You want people to be uh, checking it, but the it, it was it has been interesting to observe the different resources right available at the Ministry of Finance versus on the political side. So you end up getting at least initially the ministry's view will dominate, right? So we worked with the Ministry of Finance. We sent at Social Capital Partners probably nine or ten different memos on various aspects of this policy, uh, uh, citing evidence from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, we've met with them several times. The, the uh, other folks that have been part of the coalition have met with them several times. So they've, you know, reached out to try to talk to some people. But the way that works is very one-sided, right? So we'll send in some information. We'll sit down and talk to them. They'll ask us questions. We'll answer those questions. We'll ask some questions and they will not answer those questions, right? And they say, okay, thank you for your input. We're going to go away and do some stuff. And there, it's a mystery. Right. It's it's an unknown as to what happens at that point. You know, I think I, I think these are all well-meaning people who have different philosophies uh, and particular objectives. Um, and, and so what what ends up happening is, um, you know, the, the policy side will say we want this and the bureaucracy will bring back, at least to my understanding, a few options, one of which will be recommended. And that may or may not achieve the objectives on the policy side. And so um, I think, I think all, you know, I'll say one more thing on this before, you know, I, I completely bore everyone to death. This, this government has tried to do a lot of things, right? And that I think, and that's, you know, totally understand why, why they would want to do that. But that means that there isn't a lot of time for some policies like this one. Right, which wouldn't rank, you know, up there with the top five priorities. It would be, you know, priority number eighty-seven or something. Um, and so it ends up getting not that much airtime. So by twenty, the twenty twenty-two budget, they had learned enough on the policy side to feel they could commit to this. 
But the bill itself, like the legislation that you see in 2023 budget, wasn't written until the end of 2022, the beginning of 2023. So when it goes to the policy side and says, do you want to put this in the budget? Do you agree with our recommendation? Yes or no? There's not much time for the policy side to say no or do their own independent research, nor do they have a bunch of of, of um, resources for that. So it goes into the budget. And I think the hope on the policy side is they'll get enough feedback from folks like us to make the bill better. And so we're hopeful that that's where we are right now. They put something out that at least says, you know, here's a thing. And I'm hoping now that they're open to, well, that thing that has been put together is not going to work. But let's really deeply understand the concerns of the broader community and all of the stakeholders and put something better together by the time it becomes law. It is a great explanation. And I think it's um, it's useful to recognize that that two tiers you're talking about, you know, mm. the the minister's staff and you know, that's a that's tip like that's a small group that's you know, whatever there is a dozen people or whatever. And then yes, the, the ministry, which is or the like department, sorry, of finance, which is yes, you're and and I'm sure, like if I'm there right now, I'm probably heavily focused on the Canada disability benefit, which right. is um, you know, sort of at a similar stage here where we're waiting on or you know, pharmacare. I know it's another one that's got a big yeah. focus on yeah. Listen, if I had paid more attention in my first year politics. Uh, class, I probably would. I should know the, all this stuff, but but uh, um, you know, having first, you know, as a as someone who has spent his entire career in the in the private sector, learning about this has been fascinating. Um, uh, trying to learn at it, trying to come at it without being cynical, has been fascinating. W- one of the things I find interesting, and this is kind of a complete aside, but when I came into social capital partners, my expectation is that I would use all of my business knowledge, you know, and I'd be able to apply it to social issues and, you know, and be able to, and, and so, and be able to quickly get to solutions that will work that are practical, et cetera. And it's such a bunch of bullshit, right? Sorry to the listeners. Okay. You know, okay. and, and, and private sector folks often think that like, if only the government would work like the private sector, it'd be that much better. And the truth, I mean, that's just very far from the truth, right? Social change is so much more complicated than business objectives. And there are so many more different things you need to consider. So there's there's somewhere in the middle, you know, where things need to set, uh, uh, but it, it is simply untrue that if the private sector would just come in and run things, everything would be better. These are just much more complicated uh, um, issues than I was used to facing. And it's been uh, it's been humbling, but really useful to understand why these different things exist you know, and 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 understand like some of the rationale behind it that help you say, okay, I understand the issues you're trying to solve. Let's try and work together to get there, not just say I'm right and you're wrong, right? But I have to imagine right now too, if I'm you know at at finance and I'm looking at this, I have to be thinking about what happened with Bill C two hundred eight with the sort of attempt to fix the family business succession issue, yeah. where that was kind of a I don't know, a, a muddied effort that probably is going to result in some hundreds of millions of dollars or probably has resulted in some hundreds of millions of dollars of tax evasion or maybe not evasion, whatever it is, hey, yeah. tax that, that could have been paid that wasn't paid. Um, and you know, you don't want to introduce something here that, introdu- that creates that same opportunity. Like 
there are valid reasons to be concerned. I think this is there are valid reasons to be cautious and valid reasons to be concerned. That's part of the reason we put so much effort into understanding. So we worked with a with a a tax partner, one of the major firms to say, okay, what are the ways to use this for tax evasion if you were to provide a proper incentive like in the US and the UK? And how do you how do you, uh, um, uh, you know, regulate around that? And the answer is you can do it. Right. Like there is there are ways to prevent every different type of potential use of this for nefarious purposes or at least unintended purposes. And we've talked through all that with them. So so I think right now with this particular policy, the opportunity is so immense for Canada. And and we've mapped it out. I mean, you know, if you were to provide a proper incentive similar to the UK, we would get somewhere to in the order of 750 uh, employee owned businesses in Canada within eight years, you know, which over a hundred thousand employees, you know, billions of dollars in wealth, you know, created for workers, um, you know, uh, if you do this pro- this policy correctly, which is why we put so much time into it and why we've kind of tried to address a lot of the very valid concerns they may have, which are all addressable. So we can do this one. Perfect. So I, I don't, is there anything else that I should ask you with respect? I do want to have a, a separate conversation here about sort of employee succession in general. Yeah. Um, but is there anything else that I should be asking you specific to kind of where we're at with respect to the 2023 federal budget and the employee ownership trust? You know, I, I, um, I don't know. I, I think if there are people out there who are listening, who are interested in providing feedback, uh, we can help with that. It's actually really important, uh, uh to do that. Um, the, the area where, uh, you know, we, we have the biggest hill to climb is on the tax incentive side where, you know, the, the the power of that tax incentive to drive outcomes for workers and communities is enormous. But, you know, the government has to decide that they, they want to use their political capital for that. You know, I think they get a lot of support from the other parties, frankly. So I don't know how much political capital it would require. But that but if there are uh, folks who want to comment on that, you know, I, I can sort of I, I can help make that happen. I'm going to make sure that we have a link in there. That's this episode will go live in August, uh, early August. So I want to make sure we have a link in there that's um, useful at that point because I think the survey is closed right now. That's yeah. I mean, I listen, if you, yeah. If if it is early August right now and you are listening to this, now is the time because this bill is going to be set uh, by probably mid September. And so a, a letter they actually read letters when you send yes. notes in to Minister Freeland. She will she won't read them, but somebody will read them. Uh, and it will matter if there's a volume of folks who respond on this and say, man, our economy would be much better off if uh, owners had this option for succession. I'm going to suggest it's also not unusual that our listeners will know their MP personally. And again, a letter in that Amazing. case is often, yeah, it's often useful. I f- it's very common, John, where let's say, you know, do you know your elected officials? And yes, they'll know their provincial and federal representatives. Well, I, I, I didn't know this was such a high-powered audience jason but i'm i'm grateful <laughs> it's it's for whatever reason i don't it's a it's a common thing Great. to see john so yeah um so now can we chat a little bit about employee um succession sorry uh, succession planning sort of writ large and i i have a, a history as a business owner i'm now an employee who owns like a a fractional amount of the business that i work for um we we wrestled with this a little bit um, when I was at when Business Career College was its own entity by itself. Um, I even went to the and this is maybe my mistake. I went to the employees once and I said, you know, would you be interested in this kind of thing? And I got a really um, tepid response. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, 
So what what's your thought process there? This is you know a lot different than the Taylor example. Yeah, look, it is when you first introduce this. So even when people say, "Hey, you're now the owners," the the employees say, "Well, I don't know what that means, right?" And and, and there'd be a lot of fear associated with. So so a lot of the time, it takes a, a period of months and years to help employees understand what it does mean for them. So I'm not surprised you got a tepid response. I think people generally. Um, you know, and in fact, I don't, I don't, the research has been done on what employees actually want. And generally they're looking for a security in their jobs, some control over their work, um, you know, the promise of growth over time. Ownership isn't at the top of that list, um, partly because there's a concern about the risk they might take on and about, you know, needing to make decisions that they don't necessarily want to make or, 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 you know, don't, don't want to be consulted on. And that's, and that this has been like, you know, research. So, so those are, you know, generally agreed upon results. Um, and there are examples of share purchase programs where private companies set them up so employees can buy shares. And then if there's a year that's not successful and you got to report back, the share price have gone down, people get upset about that. So, so, you know, employee ownership is, you have to be careful about it. I think it's been quite successful in the uh, startup community where stock options are used. It's been very successful with public companies or things like restricted uh, uh, stock units and, and, and whatever the D and DSU stands for. Uh, um, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and also somewhat successful when used like stock options in private companies where employees aren't actually taking on a risk or putting money down. Um, the, the you know the the thing about employee ownership trust model where there's a, a full succession to employees that's you know more of a complicated uh, a process that needs a lot of communication over time to work but if you do it the result tends to be very successful for retention for employee happiness and for obviously employee wealth but it you know it's an effort it's not it's not like a panacea yeah again it's a it's a complicated issue right no no simple sure. answers here yeah so then looking at yeah, the, the sort of overall toolbox here. Yeah. So the certainly tax policy, you know, and you talk governance and so forth. Do you think, and I find this interesting where sort of the U S has been at this for 50 plus years, and there's probably a fairly well ingrained culture there. I, I would yep. assume then the UK it's, you know, new ish less than a decade, but it sounds like, like you said, what 330 companies that did this last year. It's something like that in the UK. And, 330, it was three, 300 the year before. It's kind of, it seems to have stabilized at somewhere between five and 10% of all transactions a year are selling to their employees. It's incredible. Do you like, did the UK just change tax policy or did they make other changes beyond that? Is there something they did to create a culture here? Was there like a public awareness campaign or does it just no. kind of take care of itself? Um, look, there were some things they did in terms of, of, of structure, but what governments generally do on this topic is they say, we want one, we want this thing, we want the thing that provides uh, worker benefits for no cost, uh, um, you know, that are stable long term. And so they set up a bunch of strings attached to employee ownership trusts, right? So the, the EOT in the UK has conditions applied to it, as does the ESOP in the US. And in exchange for those conditions, they offer a tax incentive, right? It's quite a simple carrot you know, a model, right? We want you to do these things and we're going to provide you an incentive for doing it. In Canada, they just said, we want you to do these things 
and that was the end of the story. So we'll we'll see we'll see. You know, that's probably not going to play out all that well. But that's what that's what the UK government did. But the, but then uh, um, uh, the the sort of nonprofit and private sector takes care of the rest, right? So so then on day one you've got tax planners and lawyers who said this is interesting. There's a tax incentive here. How does that work? Right? What does it mean for my clients? There's a fiduciary responsibility to understand it. So it kind of spreads out through the advisory community. And then uh, folks like us who care about uh, broadening access to ownership create structures and organizations that support it. So in the UK, there's this employee ownership association that does educational programs and, and does um, you know promotional. And then there are some governments who choose then to be more active. So the government of Scotland has set a target of how many companies they want to be employee owned in Scotland. I think it's 500 within a decade, right? At Scotland is one sixth the size of Canada. So 500 is, is a very aggressive target and they have put some money behind uh, advocating, advertising, providing some grants uh, for advisory services in order to research it for individual private companies. And, and that is really paying off. So, so the Scottish uh, um, uh, uptake of employee ownership trust is even higher than in the UK as a whole. So, and I I'm, and I would expect that with a properly incented structure in Canada, you'll see the provinces get involved, right? So we've had a lot of outreach from Canadian provinces saying, we love this, what can we do? And our answer is nothing yet, but if you have a line to the government, you should tell them that you really like this thing uh, so that they'll put some capital behind it. That's, uh, that's really good. And I like, you know, the Scottish example, obviously, because they're, get policy sort of working alongside nudges or, or whatever we want to refer to there. That's, um, that's solid. And, and you're seeing it already happen in Canada, Jason. I mean, you know, something, at least 10 law firms have commented on this so far. A couple of accounting firms, I believe, have as well. They've all said it's not going to work for all the reasons that we've talked about, plus reasons of their own. But there's already a lot of interest. I mean, there was you know, you said there's no media, but we had an article in the Global Mail, an article in the Toronto Star. I mean, there's, there's, there is interest in this, uh, but you can see how if you were to flip on the switch of some form of incentive that that uh, made owners actually consider this, the advisory community would take it and run with it. I, I do agree with that. I think that if you get a structure that works and, you know, this is it's kind of a frustrating thing to see from a tax perspective. I'm happy for your um your optimism here, John, I think we need that, right? Like we need people like you who say this can actually work. Cause I look at, and you know, whatever in our income tax act, like this government introduced the Canada child benefit, which I think has been a rousing success. I, that's one um, I would, you know, anybody comes along and says, we're going to get rid of that or whatever that, that would be a disaster. It's, you know, gone a long way to eliminating child poverty. Like yeah. there's just so much good stuff with that. Um, you know, the flip side there is you've got like the, PRPP, the pooled registered pension plan, which is actually the prior government. I can't pin that one on the current government, but that thing's been on the books now for 14 years. And I don't believe there's any PRPPs in um, Canada outside of Quebec, where there's actually a mandatory structure for them. Like it's, you know, so some, some good, some bad. And I think you saw this there is, it is, it's important and it's hard. So again, because there are so many different issues that people are trying to solve in government, uh, um, it's hard to do this, but there is, it's important for the political side of government. This is me speaking. So this is my, my point of view from what I've seen. It's important for the political side of government to take the various risks of unintended consequences 
that the ministries will present them with a grain of salt and understand what is the objective we're trying to achieve. And we can fix, if there are some unintended consequences, we can then fix them afterwards. Sometimes we'll know ahead of time. Like with this one, I actually truly believe based on what we know from the US and the UK that we can do it without unintended consequences, but we can fix those. But if you if you create policy to avoid unintended consequences, you will create policy that nobody uses because you'll constrain them so much and overburden them with regulation to the point where they just sit there doing nothing. That is where employee ownership trust is headed without some serious change. It sounds like this was true of this other uh, uh, pension policy that you've mentioned, and we saw it in the pandemic, right? So at the very beginning of the pandemic, a ministry of finance uh, was very worried about unintended consequences and slowed Canada's response versus other countries. I was following this very closely because we just formed Safe Small Business, trying to get um, commercial rent relief for small businesses. And, you know, things just took longer than they should have taken, longer than they took in Australia, longer than they took in Denmark, longer than they took in Italy, et cetera, France. Um, and that was all unintended consequence concerns. Once they got over those and came out with policies, it was actually quite a big success. Now you're seeing some of those unintended consequences are real today, but I think it's important to remember what we were trying to achieve at that time, how important it was to achieve it, and then you can kind of solve for the unintended consequences later. And so I, I just I think that that there is a important to strike a balance between thoughtful policy that understands how people are going to use it using the advice of experts, but not to be constrained so much that people don't use it. And that we can absolutely see what that balance looks like for this policy. That's that's great. Um and I think if you approach, I'm sure when when you approach the uh, the various folks that you're you know working with here with that kind of attitude, you know, people are going to respect the position you're taking. I hope so. Well, I mean, well, you know, that we we will know very soon. <laughs> so I hope so. Yeah. Um. Now, any final comments, thoughts, anything that we should have covered that we didn't hear, John? No, look, I mean, I think the, the I think what I would say is this, the, the, and I would just tell maybe one story. Um, there is a company in Canada uh, called Friesens, located in a small four thousand person town called Altona, Manitoba, near, you know, near this near the southern border with the U.S. It is the by far the biggest employer in town. It's been employee owned for decades because the family that built it insisted on transitioning it to employees. They've, they've fought through the 21-year rule stuff. They still battle it every day. But that company, like I say, employs 600 people, is one of the uh, um, you know uh, 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 two leading publishers of books uh, in this country. And every day, they get offers from competitors in the US to buy them out. Every day they get competitive, they get private equity offers to buy them out, but they stay uh, because they're employee owned. Now, if they had been purchased, if that family, like 99.9% of, of families who own businesses in Canada had sold to an American competitor or to a private equity firm, there is no way that company would still be in Altona, Manitoba. And we would be talking about Altona as another one of those communities where the factory left. And I say this because we have a fatalist approach often, especially in Canada, when it comes to this stuff, saying that the local factory is going to leave, the local electrical distributor is going to leave. There is no way to avoid it. And that is garbage, right? What we need is proactive policies that ensure that those things can stay and keep those uh, towns uh, um, you know, resilient. 
There is a Midwestern American company called Amstead, which was sold into uh, employee ownership in the 80s, has grown since like significantly since it became employee owned. And over its period has turned uh, uh, 2,600 shop floor workers. They're like an industrial company, 2,600 shop floor workers into millionaires, right? Through employee ownership. There are grocery clerks at Winco Foods and uh, uh, um, uh, Publix in the U.S. who have retired as millionaires, who have worked as a grocery clerk, you know, for 40 odd years. Publix is a is a uh, um, 80% employee owned company in the U.S. and they're the size of Loblaw, right? These are, you know, and they weren't when they became employee owned, right? They grew organically during that uh, period. So we can have that. In Canada, we can have nice things, right? We just need to choose, uh, uh, you know, to put the capital behind them and to allow them to be accessible, etc. But this is what we can do. This is the upside. You know, I came back and uh, say one more thing. I was in in D.C. in Washington uh, um, two weeks ago in, in the Senate, right, at a conference about employee ownership in the U.S. organized by their leading think tank in the U.S. plus, uh, um, you know, a, 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 a senator, right, and a senator's staff. A number of politicians came in talking about how important employee ownership was for them. The purpose of the conference was how can we design more policies to support employee ownership? And this is in a place that already has these incentives. This is kind of the power of that message. And nobody was saying we need less employee ownership. Nobody. So, so you know, we, we are on the precipice of something that can be very powerful in this country, and we just need to make sure that it has everything it needs to succeed. Perfect. And, you know, I'm in Edmonton, John, and, of course, PCL here. Um, it's, you know, good success. Great story. example. So, perfect. Great example. Yeah. Okay. Um, John, you've been just fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate your willingness to go into what, you know, you thought might be boring topics, but I think we'll be engaging for our listeners. I think this is a, a good thing to see. And you know, as tax policy gets made, there's lots of stuff that affects our clients. And I think just good to be aware of what goes on here. Um, and the Employee Ownership Trust, I hope that a few months from now, we have something that advisors can be excited about and can take to their clients and say, you know, here's an option for your um, succession planning. So thanks so much, John. Have a wonderful day and a happy birthday to your wife too. Thanks, Jason. number is six. The number is six. Okay. Um, as you can hear there, I did learn quite a bit. Uh, John had lots to share. Um, I really enjoyed that conversation. I'm going to really be watching what happens with employee ownership trust. I think there's a win to be had here if the policy is done properly. Um, I want to just switch gears a little bit here. Parker in uh, Red Deer was good enough to send me a note. I talked uh, in an earlier episode about some difficulties with transferring RDSPs. I don't want to name any particular dealer here. Parker did point out a dealer in his email to me around this, but he had said actually that when he transferred, he um, had a client transfer an RDSP from one custodian to another and post-transfer the custodian's systems for some reason didn't allow that RDSP to any longer qualify for the uh, bond. So kind of a tough one there. And I've asked for like, if there's a resolution to this yet, and he doesn't have one, but maybe it's something to watch when you're transferring an RDSP from one custodian to another, 
is are they going to be able to properly administer grants and bonds afterwards? Of course, grants and bonds are a big attractive feature of the RDSP, and we don't want to walk away from those. All right. On that note, then, let's um, wrap up here. And I'd ask you to join me again in uh, two weeks' time. In two weeks, we're going to have Braden Warwick from uh, PWL Capital on. Uh, a lot of you will be familiar. Uh, Braden just wrote or just released this paper on the use of individual pension plans. Really fantastic here. I learned a lot also in this discussion. Um, Braden is a brilliant guy and had lots of great stuff to share. So please join me in two weeks' time again when we'll look at uh, IPPs and modeling them in a little bit more depth. Thanks very much and enjoy your continued studies. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, so I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, you start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, and I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about. 